My name is David Plummer, and this is the Hold Fast Podcast. Leadership had a profound impact on my path as an athlete, as a father, and now as a leadership development consultant. The purpose of this podcast is to explore what leadership is and how it can be developed and displayed in all of us. Today's guest on the Hold Fast podcast is Austin Macbeth. Austin was a student athlete at Iowa State. He's currently an assistant coach at Truman State. He's written two books on coaching and leadership, The Sweet 16 and The Gap Theory. Both can be found at austinmcbeth.com. That's austin, M-C-B-E-T-H.com. Thanks for joining us, Austin. Thanks for having me, David. I know you got a, a strong background as a two-sport athlete in, in college, which is pretty impressive, especially in the Big 12. But I'm more interested in, in what took you from being an athlete into being a coach. It was an interesting kind of transition because I grew up probably like any kid that played basketball and football. Like I was either going to the NBA or the NFL or bus. Like there were no other options. And I was just a very, very medium-sized fish in a really, really small pond and had no idea how good other people just in my state and all around were at athletics. And so, I went the JUCO route first and played basketball and football and ended up going to Iowa State to play football. And it was about one year in. So, I got there in the middle of the year and basically went through spring ball, summer camp, football season and quickly realized this is a lot harder than it looks on TV. Like Juco <laughs> football was definitely a difficult transition. Going to the Big 12 was a whole nother beast. And I was like, there are 285 pound linemen that are faster than me. And that does not bode well for a quarterback. So um, I was fortunate enough to have a connection on the basketball team with their director of basketball operations. And Fred Hoiberg had taken over the basketball program as soon as I got there to play football. So they were kind of in a weird transition period. And so I had a friend, long story short, that was like, hey, you should try playing basketball. And I was like, dude, I'm a football player. He said, well, I mean, I don't mean to be rude, but I don't see you getting a lot of snaps at quarterbacks. So, <laughs> And so I, I got on the basketball team and that was a, just a really cool story of God showing me a ton of favor and giving me an opportunity to get in the room. And so I got on the basketball team and I thought, oh, so... NBA was the plan the whole time. This whole football thing was just some random by chance thing to get me to Iowa State. And so I had two and a half seasons to play basketball at Iowa State. And it was probably after the first season, um, which was basically just my, my conference season. And then going through my technically my junior year of basketball with one to play that I quickly came to the same realization that I came to on the football team that I'm not starting and we'll be lucky if one or two dudes on our team goes to the NBA. So there's probably not a chance of that. And it was just really cool because I never knew what I wanted to do outside of sports. Like I was a psychology major just because I had to declare a major so that I could play sports. And I was kind of in this place where it's like, well, if I'm not going to play professionally, what else is there? And I realized I don't, I'm not athletic. I'm not talented enough. I'm not big enough, strong enough, fast enough as all these dudes that I play with to do the things that I know I see that I'm supposed to do. But I get the game a lot better than a lot of my teammates. Like I just saw the game really well. I just couldn't do it. And it was like, maybe I'm supposed to coach. And we had a, a great opportunity when a guy named JC Holloway, who was one of Fred Hoiberg's teammates that played at Iowa State, came and just talked to us. And he mentioned that he 
was getting into coaching, that he got a GA position after college at playing at Iowa State. And so I asked Fred if I could be a GA after I got done with my senior year of basketball. And he's like, yeah, I think that would be great. And so at the time, there was already a GA on our team. And his name was Charlie Henry, and he's an assistant coach at Alabama now. And so I more or less did a unofficial internship with our GA while I was playing my senior year. So like we would get done with practice and then I would go up with Charlie and I'd cut film and I'd do all this stuff that like the GA had to do. I learned how to do scouting reports and all this stuff with synergy and just kind of the ins and outs. So I was more or less like doing an internship on the team that I was playing on my senior year. And I was like, yeah, I definitely think this is something that I'd like to do. So that was kind of the transition and how the whole process happened. Like there wasn't a moment that somebody came and said, hey, you're supposed to be a coach. But it was just kind of this thing where I loved the game. I felt like I really understood it. I couldn't just do a lot of the things that I knew that my body should be doing. and I just wasn't able to do it. But just being at that high level, I was like, I really think I would love to coach. And so I ended up getting a job my first year out of school, a tiny little school in North Carolina called Montreat College, little NAIA school. And I was there for probably two weeks as like the head assistant at 22 years old. And I called my mom. I was like, I don't want to do anything else the rest of my life. Like, I love everything about this. A fun transition. Yeah. You had this opportunity to kind of sit right next to the coaches while you're an athlete. So tell me what you learned during that period that helps you as a coach. I think the main thing that I took from that period of time and that season was I just started to see the game differently because it wasn't something where like I was meeting with Fred's, I was sitting in meetings with the assistant coaches because like I'm a player and I'm a walk-on. So it's not like they were like taking me under their wing and grooming me. It was more that I saw the game and I saw college basketball from the other side while I was a player. And it's interesting because I hear so many coaches say that like when I was a player, I didn't get it. Like I thought I understood it, whether they were the star player on the team or they were an assist, like whatever their role was. It's like, man, like now that I'm a coach, I really get why my coach told me fill in the blank. I now understand why they used to yell at me for this. And so I really just kind of started to see the game from both sides of the aisle. Like I started to hear some of the conversations of, you know, when coach Korn would come in and, and say something to Charlie about, Hey, like, we got to make sure that fill in the blank. And all of a sudden I was like, that's interesting. Like I didn't know those were conversations that you guys were having or just things that were brought up. And so I just kind of started to see the game itself from like the perspective of a coach, which really helped me on the floor. Cause like I'm on the bench during games. Like I can't help, I can't go in and play, but all of a sudden I'm cutting so much film and seeing so much of the other team that like, when so-and-so checks in, that's like the third dude off the bench from Texas. Like I know everything about him because I'm now cutting film for two and a half hours rather than watching a 15 minute highlight tape of them. Or when we're screwing something up in a particular play, I'm telling Corey when we come into a media timeout, Hey, like you definitely need to check this out. And it's just because like I had seen so much during film that kind of those things that I do really well now as a coach, like I started to develop those things as a player and I didn't even really necessarily realize it. It makes sense now as a coach. That's really unique, right? It's actually something I got to do early in my career as a coach. So I, I, I think it's really cool as you start to think about technique, right? You think about it a little bit differently when you have to start explaining it or strategy. You start to think about it a little bit differently when you're the one telling somebody to, to do something. And I think it's true in leadership too, right? 
as an athlete, I was always like, man, coach could have done this better. Coach could have done this better. Coach could have done that better. And then you get into the role a little bit and it's like, oh, this, this is kind of hard. <laughs> this, is, this is difficult. This isn't, you know, as easy as I thought it was going to be just stepping into it. So I think that having that overlap time is a lot of development happens, even though you maybe don't recognize it happening right away. Definitely. I had a unique experience last year where um, our head coach, who ironically was a player at the University of Iowa when I was growing up. So like I grew up watching my now boss play like every game he ever played at the University of Iowa. He unfortunately had a a rough medical situation and actually was diagnosed with cancer um, around August of last year. And so just with the chemo treatments that he was going through and everything he had to do for that, he was around, but he wasn't really in charge. And so three days into school, it's like, hey, obviously I'm going to be around. I'm going to be gone this week. I won't be back this week. I'm going to miss this. I'm going to miss that. So while I'm gone, you're kind of in charge. And now, just like you said, David, I walk into practice and it's like, all right, guys, so here's the deal. I'm going to be the coach for a while. And when Jeff shows up, if he's healthy, feels if he feels good, if he can go today, then he's in charge. If not, I'm the man. And so it was that same thing where it's like all of a sudden you're responsible for everything. You pick what we're doing. You kind of set the tone, you know, you're scheduling everything. You determine what we are and aren't doing. And it's just like, Oh, this is definitely more challenging when you are the person in charge and you make all of the decisions and you're not an assistant going, Oh, well, you know, I probably wouldn't have done this or done that. But on top of it, it was really difficult for me. And this is in no way a fault of Jeff's, but like, Every single morning I would wake up and it's like, I might be the head coach today. I might be an assistant today. And so I spent a year just never knowing what the day was going to look like, but having to be prepared and expecting to lead in this way if I have to, but also be willing to take a back seat and let my cha- my plans get changed and do what the boss wanted to do. So last year was a big growing period for me in leadership because it was a very, very unique situation, but I hopefully took a lot away from it probably sort of a a masterclass in adaptability, which hopefully is paying off this year because this seems like the year where everybody's going to need it some. So true. But it sounds to me like you were maybe uniquely positioned for this. You've written a book on coaching. You've written a book on leadership. This is stuff that's obviously, it's really important to you. Yeah. So before we kind of dive into the specific leadership stuff, is there somebody sort of along your path? You said nobody initially took you under their wing, but is there somebody along the way who really mentored you and helped you build into a leader, build into a coach? That's such a good question. And it's so pertinent to my life right now. I kind of have these yearly things that I am trying to accomplish, things that I want to get done, things I want to get better at that I kind of write down at the beginning of the year. You could call them New Year's resolutions, but they're more just things to focus on for the year. And one of the things that I was taking assessment of just my life and growing and things like that, that I really wanted to accomplish this year, I've never had someone that I would call a mentor. I've never had a big brother or a father figure mentor who has mentored me in my faith. I've also never had the exact same thing in coaching. And it's something that I really desire. I've never had someone who has been like, Austin, I want to help and teach you how to do fill in the blank. Unfortunately, I grew up and I didn't have my father in the home. My mom and my dad got divorced when I was one. And so there has been a lack of leadership in my life, especially from a male standpoint or a father figure. I've had a lot of really, really good, amazing men in my life that I've kind of 
modeled my behavior after things that I've seen. So I don't want to discredit them. Uh, if they were to ever hear this, be like, dang, Austin, no, like there are definitely some people who have done a phenomenal job of just being a good example. But I haven't really ever had someone pursue me and take me under their wing and say, hey, like I want to teach you what I've learned in the years that I've been a coach. And so in some ways, I still long for that a ton. And it's something that I desire, both from a coach's standpoint and just in my faith. But I also think that it has almost created a desire in me to be a good leader, knowing that I might be able to help a younger Austin Macbeth not feel that same sense of, no one's ever taught me how to do this. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. And so I take any opportunity I have as a leader, I take it very seriously because I understand how much I desire to have that in my life. And so I hope that in my opportunities that I get in the places that I'm put, that I find ways to do that for somebody else. I don't think we have enough time for me to tell you how much that resonates with me in my experience. I think that there's often this lack of leadership in coaching. Yeah. And I'm the same way. I had, I had some people who were incredibly meaningful through my career. I lost my father when I was in college. He, he passed away when I was 19. There's this gap, right? And I, I was really lucky in my career. I got to work with some of the most technically great coaches in the world. But there's this lack for me. And that, that's actually why we started this podcast. It's sort of the piece that's important to me to say, how do we help people fill this gap and be better in the leadership roles that they're in? Yeah. So tell us about these, these truths that you found the, that you reflected on in the book and help us contextualize those in the, into coaching and, and leadership. So the, the premise of the book, which I wrote, it's called The Sweet 16, A Coach's Guide to Leadership. It's a play on words. Most people would hear The Sweet 16 and automatically think of March Madness or because of COVID-19, March Sadness, as it's, <laughs> it's thought of right now. Um, but what The Sweet 16 is actually talking about is in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8, most people call 1 Corinthians 13 the love chapter. There are four and a half verses that talk about what love is. And we tend to just spread love on everything like mayonnaise. Like I love my dog. I love Iowa State. I love being a basketball player. I love watching Family Matters. Like we just think that love is just this general term. But biblically, the love that it was referring to is agape love, which means an unconditional love. I'm going to treat you this way, regardless of how you respond to it. There are 16 characteristics or attributes of love that the Bible talks about. Most people are very familiar with at least a couple of them. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not self-seeking. It does not dishonor others. There are 16 traits. And so, the truth that I have seen more than anything related to the X's and O's of basketball is people are motivated by two different things, love and fear. Like everything that motivates people come down to those two things. And I'm afraid that motivation through fear is the easy way out. It gets quick results. It's the microwaved version of real leadership because I can scream and yell and scare you and Savannah will turn around and I guarantee you she will swim faster than she did five minutes ago. But at the end of the day, is she going to come back every single day and desire to want to get into the pool and try and listen to me and believe what I'm telling her will be successful in the future, 
probably not. Now it just turns into animosity and I don't really even like you. Now I'm here and I don't want to be. You've destroyed my desire to even want to do the sport that I used to love. Now it seems like a job and an obligation. And I think over time we see that love wins and fear typically ends up burning kids out. They stop becoming passionate. They start hating the thing that they used to love. And ultimately, you brainwash people into thinking this is what love looks like. And that's one of the main things I focus on in the book is I talk about the fact that a lot of these coaches who are motivating kids through fear or whatever it is that they need to do to get instant results, they also turn around and say, hey guys, like I love you and I wouldn't trade you for any other team. You guys are the best kids I've ever had. Like I love you guys like you're my own kids. And so those athletes who have been treated in a way that was not loving they now adopt this idea of, oh, well, getting cussed at and told that I suck, that's the tough love that people give. Well, those same athletes are going to be parents, they're going to be husbands, and now all of a sudden, I start cussing at my wife, and when she's upset and she says, you don't talk to me like that, oh, I'm sorry, like that was just tough love. We just have this broken understanding of what love is. And it unfortunately turns into a vicious cycle. And so the book is really challenging people to understand like this is what the truth of love looks like. And we either need to stop saying we love people or we need to start changing in these particular areas. And I walk through every single trait of the Sweet 16 and talk about how sports has really diluted and perverted a lot of these things. That's incredible. There's so many follow-up questions I have here. But I think the the one thing I want to say before I ask any follow-ups is I've experienced exactly what you're talking about. Wow. And that's uh, it's sort of this difficult thing, right? It's something that just becomes so normal. Mm-hmm. And I often think that coaches are, are doing one of two things. They're either doing exactly what was done to them. Yeah. Or they're trying to do the opposite of what was done with them because they didn't like it, right? Yep. And when those become your only two options, you're really limited. So, true. so I think that more has to be done to give coaches exactly what you're talking about, to give people a framework to say, this is another way to do it. And it's my belief that not only can this make better people, but this can lead to more success. I, yeah. I think what you're saying about motivation is absolutely true. That if I use fear, you know, they say with kids that if you use fear as a motivator or yelling as a motivator, that it works. But every time you have to elevate to continue getting to that level, it's right? So, true. so I, I just yelled quickly first. My kid jumped and he went and did what I told him to do. Next time I got to yell more mm. and I got to keep elevating to where it just gets worse and worse and worse to continue getting the same result. It's so true. Whereas what I hear you saying is, is there's this different way through relationships and through love to connect with people. Mm-hmm. My question for you is, how do you make this actionable? You know, the, the passage that you read from, I've heard that many times. I, I, I normally hear it at weddings, yeah. right? That's where, yeah. that's where you hear that come up. Yeah. And you're taking that and you're putting it into this coaching concept where people are throwing the love word around more but it's not necessarily the norm yet. Mm-hmm. So how do you make a case for doing things differently? We need to evaluate and ask ourselves, why did you become a coach? Because you are teaching kids, young adults, and adults. Like you're teaching somebody something so much bigger than X's and O's of a game. Like you are basically another parent to that person. 
And so I just think people get into coaching for the wrong reason. And then all of a sudden, all of these external motivators of coaching, being popular, uh, winning championships, getting more money, climbing the prestigious ladder, all of these, getting a bigger house, moving to this city, being a part of this conference, those things all of a sudden become, well, this is why I want to be successful. And so now all of a sudden, I make $70,000 and if we win, I could go to the Mac and I could make 190. And so now my point guard, who's a great kid, who I recruited, who I love, he hasn't made a free throw for the last week. And we lost two games because he couldn't handle the pressure. You're now standing between me and $100,000. And you have now become a pawn in my game of me trying to climb this ladder. But if the whole purpose of coaching was, I want to have the opportunity to teach the people who are on my team what it means to be responsible, how to be on time, how to deal with conflict because that's part of sports is conflict resolution, how to deal with people who you might not necessarily be friends with off the court, but you have to work together to be successful at the thing that you're doing. Like These are all life skills to help human beings be better human beings when they graduate. Because at the end of the day, sports stops for everyone. The basketball will stop bouncing for LeBron at some point, and then he has to be a human being. And if all he knows is basketball, he's going to struggle to do things once it ends. And so I think it starts with understanding that we are teaching more than just a game. We are teaching more than just X's and O's. Our role as a coach is so much bigger than, can I get this kid a degree and win some games while he's here. It's like when he leaves, is he going to know how to be a faithful husband to his wife? When he leaves, is he going to know what it takes to be successful and the discipline that is required to be good at his job? All of these things have nothing to do with winning games. And so in that love, I mean, you think about these words, patience. Like if coaches just started with the first thing in the Sweet 16 and said, This year, all I'm going to focus on is being more patient with my players, regardless of how frustrated I am, no matter what's going on at home, no matter how frustrated I am with my athletic director, I am going to be more patient with my players. I think we would see much different interactions and relationships between coaches and players with just that, not even to mention kindness and being kind in the way that you deliver a message. And my thing is, try it. Like, I dare you to try these things because I have seen so much fruit in the eight years that I have coached, the text messages I've received, the one-on-one conversations that I've had with players saying, I know that you actually love me and it doesn't have anything to do with basketball. And my response is, it's because it's true. Like, I want to win games, but what I want more than anything is for Wally Odafin to call me and say, hey... I only had 49 spots for my wedding because we're in the middle of COVID and you're one of the people that I want to come. Like to me, that says I did something right with Wally. And those are the things that last. And I think if you can start a culture of that, you'll find out that the wins and the losses and the success, like it'll come and go. But those relationships are really what matters. I don't know if anybody's ever been on their deathbed at the end of their life and thought about how many conference championships they've won. They think about their relationships, they think about the impact that they've made, and they think about their loved ones. And I'm hoping that when I get to that place, 
I'll have a really, really long list of those things, regardless of whether I have a championship or not. One of the reasons I was, I was really excited to talk to you, you know, we were kind of doing our research, looking into you. You had this thing you said in an interview where you were talking about leading from essentially leading from a place, place of vulnerability. So I think what you said was we're broken people leading broken people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really contrary to what most people think of in terms of leadership. We think of leadership and we think control, we think power, but you're coming at it from a, a much different way. What led you to this? What led you to this discovery of we can lead from a different place? A lot of it is my faith because one of the most probably misunderstood and powerful things about being a Christ follower or a Christian that there is, is that we're not now perfect because we chose to accept this free gift. The reason, the true reason behind salvation and the gospel is that I am a hot mess. And regardless of whether I believe in Jesus or not, I am screwed up. The purpose of the gospel is that it's not about your perfection. It's about Jesus's perfection and his willingness to be a sacrifice for me. And so the reason why I think it's so important to understand that as coaches, we're not perfect, we're never going to be, is it actually makes this relationship so much better. Because when I go to practice, I am so much quicker to apologize when I've had a bad day when a player comes up to me and says, Hey, you know, like I was really looking forward to fill in the blank. And then you just stop any critique that a young adult has, instead of me feeling like I have to flip the script and say, no, it's your fault. You don't understand what it's like. I can just admit my fault and say, listen, guys, I'm going to get this thing wrong. Shoot. Last year when I got thrown into the head coach position, I told our guys a lot. I'm sorry. Like this is my first time. I'm probably not going to do everything right. I'll apologize when I'm wrong. If I did something wrong to offend you, please let me know. I'm going to try my best. I think it's such a great model to my athletes because one of the things that my responsibility is as a coach in film is to say, hey, you did this wrong. You're supposed to be here. What do we do on this play? And I am a very firm believer that players end up reflecting their coach. If you look at teams, they are a reflection of the person that's in charge. And so if I constantly come in day after day from a position of I'm right, you're wrong, I'm big, you're small, I'm in charge, you're not, then how in the world am I supposed to turn around when they make a mistake and say, you need to own up to the fact that you're wrong here. You need to be better about telling your teammates, hey, that's my bad, I'll do better next possession, when I can't do that. And so I think by us being vulnerable enough to say, listen, I'm a mess, I'm going to screw up, but I'm going to tell you that I'm going to be vulnerable and transparent. I think you're setting such a great example because then our players don't have to strive to be perfect. And as coaches, that's what we say. You need to be perfect. You need to have a perfect rep, a perfect game. You need to go perfect from the free throw line. That's not attainable. And so we can say, I want you to give your best effort and trust the system and we'll deal with the results. How much freedom is there in knowing I don't have to be perfect, I just have to give everything I have? There's so much you said there that really resonates. 
the idea that the culture follows the leader. I absolutely believe that that's true. You know, I, ha- I had a mentor tell me when I stepped into one of my first leadership roles, he was like, you got to accept that you're going to do things wrong. It's like, if you do a really good job, you'll get two thirds of your decisions right. If you're really good at what you do, I was like, that's, that's, a, that's a tough reality to accept, but it, he was totally right. And I think what you're saying about providing the space for, for people to not chase perfection Chasing perfection is, is one of those things that it does. It comes up all the time, but it, it should be really clearly defined. Perfection is doing everything you can do. You know, I, I, was, I was listening to a podcast with one of the, the guys I used to compete against, and he was like, you know, I think I'm at a, at a point in my season where I'm ready to go best times. I'm ready to go PRs. And the interviewer was like, that's oppressive considering you hold the world record right now. And he's like, <laughs> He's like, I don't like to think about it like that. I don't think about it as world records. It's harder that way. I just, I'm just trying to do my best. I'm trying to go my best time. So I think that there's so much there that I totally agree with you on. My question for you is, how does this resonate with, with those you lead? I think it's been, it's been incredible. And I have had so many conversations with players currently, former players, like, and I've told, I said this earlier, like text messages, phone calls, that it's not about basketball. And that's kind of how I know I'm doing things right or like consistently with what I talked about in the book. Because life is about relationships, both good and bad. The biggest hurts that we experience in life typically come from relationships. The greatest joys and successes we ever have that we remember, there are usually people that accompany those memories because life is about relationships. It's truth. And you can change facts and you can change the way that the game is played and you can change the stakes. But I'm telling you, love will never change. And these characteristics and these traits will never be altered. They won't ever not matter. And too often, we, we can't motivate kids. We feel like this generation is soft and they're not motivated and they don't have purpose. Well, how are we as leaders, as parents, as teachers, as coaches, how are we motivating them? Because if we go back to the source of what love is, maybe we should try being kind. Maybe we should try not being envious or boasting. Maybe we should try these things. This will be successful for anyone. Awesome. It's awesome. Awesome to hear that and to hear your passion and conviction for this. I so agree with you that this is, it's, it's all about relationships. If we're talking about leadership, we're talking about relationships. That's, that's really all there is. I still have probably 30, 40 more questions for you, but I, I think we'll, we'll call it there. I just really appreciate your approach to this, your human philosophy that this is about people. It really, really does resonate with me and the things that I, I believe to be true about leadership. So I just really appreciate your time today. Thanks for coming on. And uh, I definitely look forward to keeping in touch and, and seeing what your next steps are. Thank you so much. Absolutely honored to be on here with you. And it was nice meeting you and getting to talk to you. And hopefully, yeah, we will get to catch up and talk about some more of those 40 questions. (laughs) Right on. Thanks, Austin. Absolutely. The Hold Fast Podcast is produced by Premier Sports Psychology and a part of the Premier Podcast Educational Series. For more information, please visit premiersportspsychology.com or check out our online educational suite at mindsetprogram.com.